is that their society is made in a way that divides up the labour. No one bee is expected to be able to do everything. For example, it's the queen's sole task to lay enough eggs to establish and maintain a total colony population of about 25,000 bees. Now, ladies, do you think that five kids might be a handful? Then there are the drones who are few in number and they have a very short lifespan. Their only job is to mate with the queen and provide her with the sperm that's needed for the whole of her reproductive life, after which they literally explode. I hope nobody gets any ideas when they're getting married here. Lastly but not leastly, there are the worker bees who perform all the day-to-day work in the hive. During their 30-odd days of life, they will fly up to 800 kilometers. Now that's pretty amazing for a tiny little bee. How can we possibly imagine that such a fantastic creature is merely an act, an accident of nature? Our text this week is Ephesians 4, verse 7. Please can you turn there now. In recent history, we have had enough material for two sermons on the general unity of the church in Christ. These have given us such a clear and marvelous picture of how we ought to be relating to each other as Christians, not just within this building, but within the whole community of the church throughout the world. Now, when we look at the size of that, it would be easy to think that our personal space in this great assembly is unimportant, that we might just be another bee in the hive, so to speak. But we will learn this week from Paul that like bees, each one of us is customized for a specific task and that that task contributes to the health of the whole body. Let's go to our text then. I'm going to start reading a little bit earlier so that we can follow the thoughts through. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavouring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all. But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So in verses 5 and 6, we've just been reminded of all we have in common. One body and one spirit, one hope of our calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Now now in verse 7, we're going to zoom in from that wide-angle shot into the macro close-up. When we are having a passionate discussion with somebody else and they start their reply with the word but, we would generally expect that there's an argument coming along soon because of some sort of opposite position to our own. And here Paul has used this word but. But, he isn't about to destroy the proposition he's just made for unity. He's going to show each one of us our particular part in achieving that unity. I'm becoming increasingly despairing, and by the way that means increasingly boring according to my good wife, about the way that people mangle English today. Just recently I heard somebody talking about the rear taillights on their car. I guess you would probably find those at the opposite end to the front headlights, yeah? 
It's generally considered wasteful and unnecessary duplication to add a position word to another word that already tells us where the thing is. That said, Paul pretty much does this at the beginning of verse 7. In Greek he writes, Heistehekastos, which means literally, one, but each one. Now this is really clever actually, because that word heist is the same word that is just used repeatedly in verses 5 and 6 to talk about one in the sense of unity. Remember we were going on about um, one faith, one Lord, one baptism. It's that word heist again. And here he's using it again where he's talking about individuals within that unity. So he set up a direct connection between those ideas. One both in unity and one as an individual. In the same way that front headlights is an unnecessary duplication, he didn't actually need to add the high spit because a Greek speaker reading Hekastos at the time knew very plainly that it meant one person separately. So Paul's strategy of adding the two words together is meant both as a reinforcement of meaning and a clever picture drawn in words. In the first sense, it's as though he's calling out to the reader, and I'm going to use the, the illustration of the congregation here, so it's a hearer, with very painful accuracy. You, yes, you in the blue dress sitting in the third pew from the front. Who, me? Yes, you, I'm talking about you. His duplication has powerfully strengthened the message that the point he's about to make is specifically intended for each and every reader as an individual. And in case you're at all confused at the moment, who that means, it's you. Yet in a most eloquent way, Paul has also not allowed that pointed individualism any space to separate itself from the unity of the body by the way he has used that word heis. It's a link back to his earlier words. He's saying, although I'm talking very directly to you, don't forget that you are part of something much bigger. So we have this crystal clear picture. Paul is very deliberately speaking to each one of us as a single person, but within the multitudes of people that make up the unified body of the church. We are one, but each one. What is it that's so important for each and every single one of us to pay attention to? Our verse today tells us that we have been singly and individually been given grace by Christ. Now there's a possibility for some confusion here because we most often hear that word grace used in association with the act of salvation. So we might start to think that that's the only way in which it's relevant. In fact, we enjoy God's grace in many different ways from the moment we are saved right through into eternity. And that's something to praise him for. The definition of grace is favour or kindness shown without regard to the worth or merit of the one who receives it and in spite of what that person deserves. It is one of the key attributes of God and it's proclaimed by his own lips as we read in Exodus 34. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. As a bit of an aside, grace is almost always associated with mercy, love, compassion and patience. I'm going to say that again. 
Grace is almost always associated with mercy, love, compassion and patience. I'd say it's proper to mention here that if we're even slightly confused about what are the right attitudes to practice that will help to build Christian unity, then we don't need to look any further than what's right there in that sentence. You'll find it in your sermon notes. And I encourage you to go back to that afterwards and think and pray over it, asking you to help, asking the Holy Spirit to help you live those things out. Living within God's grace is like having an eternal birthday where we receive gifts of one kind or another from our Lord, not because we deserve them, but through his mercy, love, compassion and patience. The most important of these, of course, is the gift of salvation. But God graciously also gives us other practical spiritual gifts to use. It's this practical gifting aspect of grace that Paul is speaking about here. I want to ask you a question. Do you think that God has only given some Christian gifts? Or has he given all Christians gifts? More specifically, do you believe that God has given you a gift. Actually, you don't have a choice in the matter. Remember what I said about Paul's clever use of Greek to make sure that it was emphatic that he was talking to every believer? But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Do you believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is your Saviour? That he has bought redemption? with Almighty God for you through the price of his blood shed on the cross, then you have indisputably been graciously gifted by God. There are many ways that we might receive this information. It may well be that this is old news to you. You've known for years what your gifting is and you've faithfully used it. Praise God for that. I guess I'll have to ask you to be patient then. But, Maybe you're a new Christian, and this is completely unfamiliar news. Or perhaps you've been a Christian for a while, and you've kind of vaguely known about these things. Or perhaps believe that those gifts were for those loud people who stood up on the front, and not for those what live in the pews. Wherever we are on this journey, the Word of God remains effective. We will always learn something from it, if our ears open to hear one thing is for sure those gifts were never meant to be left on the shelf so at this point I think it's appropriate for us to spend some time talking particularly about gifts what they are, what they aren't what we need to do with them who gets them and why are they given for this exercise I want to acknowledge the excellent resource on the Precept Austin website and also Wayne Grudem's book on systematic theology that has provided me with a great deal of material here. So, let's plunge in. Firstly, in broad terms, what are spiritual gifts? In language, alliteration is the repetition of a particular sound in the first syllables of a series of words or phrases. It's often used for effect in poetry, but it also has its uses for aiding memory. And here, to answer our question alliteratively, are the seven S's. Spiritual gifts are supernatural abilities sovereignly given to strengthen his saints 
who as they serve one another being good stewards of the manifold grace of God. I think it's just as well I don't lisp, otherwise you'd be drowning in the front row. A more formal definition would be something like this. Spiritual gifts are divine enablements for ministry given by the Holy Spirit in some measure to all believers and are to be completely under his control and to be used for the building of the body of Christ all to, all to glory to God through Jesus Christ. Bearing in mind these definitions, we can talk about a few things that are not spiritual gifts. The first of these is salvation. Now, before anybody starts yelling at me, because I've already said that salvation is a spiritual gift, it is a personal gift. Okay? And so it doesn't fit within our definition in this case. Character. We have our character before the Holy Spirit ever does his work on us. And to a large extent, it stays the same afterwards. If character were a spiritual gift, it would be pretty handy because all those little annoying little faults, well, they could be done away with just like that. That would be very helpful. However, in his wisdom, God works with our existing character through the Holy Spirit in cooperation with our obedience to make us ever more like Christ. Talents or skills aren't spiritual gifts. I have been known to have a talent for offending people. This clearly isn't a spiritual gift. <laughs> Elders, deacons, or any other church titled services, they aren't spiritual gifts. I shudder to think what abuses of power might come from those who cause the body of the church to believe that their title or office is a spiritual gift. Let me be clear, it is not and it never will be. People serving like this may be expressing their spiritual gifts and they certainly ought to be, but in the end these are merely positions. They are not gifts. Now that we know what spiritual gifts are and are not, we might ask, well, why do we have them? The first part of the answer is very easy and it's very scriptural. And uh, we will see that in 1 Peter 4.11, which reads, If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it, as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. That's very simple. The principal reason that we have spiritual gifts is so that God may be glorified. Now it would be faulty reasoning to say that our failure to use our gifts would diminish God's glory in any way because we are just too puny to have any effect on holy and perfect and sovereign God. However, if by using our gifts we do expose his glory to the world, which given his character must be a good thing, then why would we choose not to do so? It doesn't follow. Glorifying God is both worthy work and a proper response to the overwhelming gift of salvation. This should be a matter that is constantly on our minds as we make those continuous choices through the day on how to respond to each situation that comes our way. There are several other reasons that we have this, these gifts. Firstly, they are to be used for the common good. 1 Corinthians 12 
but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. Our spiritual gift is not for our own pride or selfish needs, but it is intended to profit the whole body of Christ. Therefore, if you don't use your spiritual gift, it actually affects the health of the entire body. Do you think the church is unwell? That it could do better? Something ought to be done? Well, you can be part of that doing, if you are using your gift. Secondly, we have gifts to serve one another. 1 Peter 4.10 As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. God knows that the life of a Christian will not be easy, so he has not left us alone. We have the Holy Spirit within us as a helper. We've just read about that in chapter 3. But he has also given gifts to the believers around us that will encourage exhort and comfort us we in turn have the same potential for our brothers and sisters the exercise of the gift then is on the same level as glorifying God if you would like to be helped and served then why would you not serve and help others the ability is not the question but the will may be thirdly we have gifts to equip the saints for ministry We're just about to come to this passage in verses 11 and 12. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now, as I've already mentioned, I've just spent a few days in Australia with my brothers. During that time, we spent a few days in a batch at Ely Beach. It was a very nice batch, but there were a few annoying effects, defects in that batch that I was just itching to repair. You know, there were lights that weren't working, and the screen was broken, and the fan didn't work. The problem was that I didn't have any tools with me. So I had the knowledge, and I had the ability, and I had the interest, but I just didn't have the means. God didn't intend his saints to be left under-equipped for any ministry. So he made sure that each one is perfectly resourced for the work that they are intended to do. If you feel called to serve and yet lack confidence that you are unable, you can take heart from this knowledge. Since God has called you, then he will also have given you the capabilities. You might not have found them, but they will be there. We can't leave this point right now because we also need to ask the question of why the saints need to be equipped. Why can't God just do this? We have already answered this in part for individual relationships, but in the wider sense, it wasn't intended to make the pews warmer than in any other church. Dwight L. Moody said that the church is not a spiritual rest home, but a barracks for training soldiers of the cross. Whilst we have identified a body of people in this building as leaders, it doesn't mean that it is their task to do everything. Now please don't misunderstand this as some kind of pointed criticism from the pulpit because I can assure you very sincerely from the elders' perspective that we are very, very encouraged by the numbers of people who serve in so many, many ways in this church. As I look around, 
and I can see so many faces that I know are doing various things. And I know from conversations with other leaders in other churches that we actually have something of an enviable position in that regard. But I don't think we can afford to rest on our laurels. And we can't avoid what Scripture says. And we mustn't assume that we have achieved all there is to achieve. Moody's comparison to a barracks bears some thought. You know, soldiers don't, in training, they don't get to lie on their bunks and relax. They are pushed and tested and disciplined. Every one of us here has something to give. It might not necessarily be pleasant to do so, but it will bear fruit and we should not shirk the responsibility. So, I'm simply asking, have you taken up your part? Now that we've covered some basics, let's talk about what some of those spiritual gifts are called. And there are actually six different lists in the New Testament, but unhelpfully, they are all different. I'm not going to to, um, read you a list of the scriptures or the gifts, but you will find them there in your notes, and we may refer to some as we go along. It seems that there never was an exhaustive list. You know, we can't, we can't go to Scripture and say it starts at A and finishes at N. Where Paul has used these lists, it seems as though he wasn't trying to define them, but merely to show that they were there and they were expressed in very many ways. The point of all this is simply to say that God gives the church an amazing variety of spiritual gifts and they are all tokens of his varied grace. Practically, we should be willing to recognize and appreciate people who have gifts that differ from us and whose gifts may differ from our expectations of what certain gifts should look like. Moreover, a healthy church will have a great diversity of gifts And this diversity shouldn't lead to fragmentation, but to greater unity among believers in the church. Paul's whole point in the analogy of the body with many members is to say that God has put us in the body with these differences so that we may depend on each other. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, or the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body which seem to be the weaker, are actually indispensable. It runs counter to the world's way of thinking to say that we will enjoy greater unity when we join closely together with those who are different from us. But that is precisely the point that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 12, demonstrating the glory of God's wisdom and not allowing anyone to have all the necessary gifts for the church, but in requiring us to depend upon each other for the proper functioning of the church. There are many opinions around this matter of gifts, and some of them are very passionate indeed, particularly around the beliefs of which ones are still active in the church today, such as tongues and prophecy. I'm not anxious to add fuel to this fire, since there are scriptural positions either way. Moreover, I would not like to presume to be saying what the Holy Spirit can and cannot do. He is sovereign and will determine what gifts are necessary and when they are necessary. 
My one plea is this. Whatever view you hold, please don't just let it be on somebody else's say-so. If you have truly searched Scripture and prayed and asked the Holy Spirit for His advice and then come to a view, then your position is secure. However, merely latching onto the latest exciting fad will just leave us frighteningly exposed to error and sin. Please, don't go there. There is a great deal more we could talk about, but for the sake of time I want to move on to some more practical matters. I'm sure that by now some of us will be asking questions like, if I have a gift, well, how will I know what it is? And how can I use it? Well, unfortunately, Scripture isn't especially helpful on this matter. The tone of Paul's comments suggests that he writes with the assumption that believers will know what their spiritual gifts are. And Peter has a similar stance, although he does at least mention how to use them. It seems then that we have lost something very important over the last 2,000 years. Here's a sad statistic. A Barna Group survey in America, which was reported early in 2009, said that while 68% of churchgoers have heard of spiritual gifts, they didn't know what theirs was. Could this really be part of God's plan? It seems impossible that the Lord would have changed his mind for the church so radically that gifts would have been abandoned. So the lack must be ours. What have we given up? What might the church be like if the majority of believers not only knew about, but used their spiritual gifts? This doesn't have to be an unanswered question, because in this church, on this day, we can make the decision to do things differently. The first part of actually doing this is recognizing that our gifts have been granted at God's discretion. We might like to have an apparently more flash gift like Muriel over there, but that isn't going to happen. God has wisely chosen exactly the right one for us. So it's most appropriate to appreciate that and not to overreach for something that we don't have. The list of gifts quoted in Romans 12 is written in such a way as to emphasize this. The Greek construction in this sentence is what is known as locative of sphere. There'll be a test on that afterwards. The point is that whatever your spiritual gift is, you are to stay within the sphere of that spiritual gift. If your spiritual gift is teaching, then don't try to exercise the gift of service. We can use the body as an analogy. If one is an eye, for an example, then just be good at looking. I don't think I've ever seen anyone walk successfully on their eye. Since we are talking about eyes, let's also ask ourselves what it might be like to try living with only one. I know people who do, and they cope very well, but I know from their own testimony that it's nowhere near the same as having two. We must accept in the immediate sense that this information is true for me. That when we don't use our gift, we are robbing the church of a vital organ that was part of God's design. The responsibility 
for a church that is, for example, one-eyed and isn't functioning properly, isn't necessarily in the hands of the leadership, but is in the hands of their members if they fail to use their gifts. There are five areas in our Christian lives where we will find clues that help us to identify what body part we are. Firstly, we will be drawn to that spiritual gift. As I've already said, we are not alone. The Holy Spirit is with us always. He will be encouraging us where to go. And we should try to be open to that conversation. (laughs) One very obvious but not necessarily used way of doing that is just to ask, Holy Spirit, I believe that God has graciously granted me a spiritual gifting. Please, can you help me to find it and use it? Do you think that he will fail to answer that request? I don't think so. He understands that we might be afraid that the answer will mean that we should go and minister to the Eskimos. But the reality is usually something far closer to home and not at all scary. Why should we want to rob the body of an important part in ourselves of the rewarding experience of godly obedience? Secondly, we should show interest. Are you interested in Eskimos? Then do do I have a prophecy for you? (laughs) Interest is like the worm on the hook. What's that shiny thing in the water? Oh, it looks tasty. Oops. Now, I don't mean to say that God will force us to use our gifts against our will, but I do want to illustrate the importance of interest. You know, if you're interested in Sunday school, well, maybe the Holy Spirit is encouraging you to take that extra step and try teaching there. Thirdly, we will experience success in the exercise of that spiritual gift. Have you tried worship leading and had things thrown at you and dogs howling outside? Well, it's probably not your spiritual gift then. But at least you tried. At some point we will succeed, but we won't ever know that unless we try. That's an unavoidable first step of obedience. The existence of the gift isn't in doubt but our willingness to use it may be. Note that the success might be in a surprising place. I believe you will find many of your brothers and sisters will tell you, if you ask, that they are amazed to be doing what they are doing. And that's the power of the Holy Spirit at work, isn't it? My last comment on this matter of success is that we must never ever allow success or recognition to go to our heads. Remember, the gift was from God. It wasn't anything we did on our own or are able to do on our own. Its use is first for His glory and then for the benefit of the church. A fourth way that you might find out about your gift is very easy because some people are actually blessed by direct prophecy regarding their gifts. In 1 Timothy 4, Paul writes, Do not neglect the gift that is in you which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. Sometimes it can be really easy. Lastly, others will see your gift. 
When we spoke about the drawing part of identifying your gift a few moments ago, I mentioned a very simple step. Ask. Ask people around you who know you well. Hey, I want to know what my gift or gifts are. What do you think they may be? What may be very obscure to you might be blindingly obvious to them. So set that reluctance or whatever aside and just ask. The Lord hasn't given us these gifts as some kind of interesting experiment for his own amusement. Hey, let's see how Muriel does if we give her a talent for singing. He has gifted believers for a number of his own specific purposes, as we have seen. Therefore, to not fulfill those purposes is disobedience. And disobedience, folks, unavoidably is this thing called sin. We could probably think of many fine excuses for why we have committed these sins, but the fact remains that when God brings the old order to a close, he's going to be asking you and I for an account of what we have done with our gifts. And I fear that in the face of the sovereign Lord, our excuses will be less than feeble. There's so much more that we could talk about spiritual gifts, but time is getting by. Before we must finish, we must quickly return to the balance of today's verse. We read that we have been given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. How do we know that we are capable of using the gift or gifts that Christ has given, that we won't be mentally or physically or spiritually incapable of using what we have been given? We know because Christ is the one who has decided exactly what gifts each believer should have. And we also know that he, ca- he cannot make a mistake. He knows intimately each one of his sheep and what they can and cannot do. So he matches his gift of grace to each one's ability. This means that this grace that is evidenced by gifts is not given in the same measure to every believer. Some have more and some have less. And this shouldn't ever be a reason for jealousy. Firstly, Scripture tells us that we have been given precisely as much as we can handle. And secondly, that the apportioning has been done by one who shows no special favours. This doesn't necessarily mean that the exercise of the gift will be easy. Undoubtedly, it will stretch us but we can have absolute confidence that we will not fail, that we have the means. There is no reason either that we should think that having one particular gift as opposed to another is any reason to boast. They were given by God. No human has any cause for pride over them. In Romans 12, Paul cautions us over this very thing. For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, Not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. In conclusion, let's go back over the main points. Each and every believer, that means all of us in here, definitely has gifts. There are many, many positive reasons to use them, not least of all being obedience to God who has given us so much love. We have not been left alone 
and figuring them out. We have the Holy Spirit at our side who will be overjoyed to help us. We do know how to find them. But we must act. We must put one step in front of the other in order to do so. Lastly, we have no cause to fear failure because Jesus himself has decided the amount of gifting and matched it to our abilities. Let's not be found wanting then. Let's find out what our church will look like as it is filled with God's people, each and every one using their gifts. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have equipped us in this way. Lord, as we leave here today, I pray that we would have a real sense of purpose and a real sense of how what you have made us will contribute to this body. That we would look beyond our own thoughts and problems on this day to what we are part of and that you are at the head of this. And so, Lord, I pray that we would really question what our gifts are, if we are using them, and, Lord, that we would be compelled to do so for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.